Uh, let's uh, turn our Bibles now to Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're going to read verse 13 through to 17. So Mark 12 from verse 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he... Knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose inscription is this? Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have now to dive into it together. And we pray that you would truly work in our hearts and minds, that you would confront us where we need to be confronted and that you would encourage us, each one of us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are going a little bit slowly through Mark chapter 12 at the moment. Now, I'm not doing that to be a pain in the neck. I have heard sermons where we cover a whole heap, where people cover a whole heap of these parts of Mark's gospel all in the one go. And they tend to be titled things like courtyard conversations because we're still in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I have actually taught this in much faster chunks than this. But I think it's helpful for us to slow down sometimes because in each one of these interactions that Jesus has, there is an important lesson for us to learn. We come into this at a time where Jesus has been having a discussion, going back to to Mark 11, verse 27, with the the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of Israel. That continues through to chapter 12, verse 12. And then we pick up in chapter 12, verse 13, where we read about they, and from the way this is written, the they there is this, cabal of people who are opposed to Christ and want to stop him, they, this group who are upset with Jesus, send some Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus out. We're looking, as we begin this morning, at a trap they present to Jesus. In some ways, what we could imagine these discussions in the temple courtyard as being like, is almost like a, I don't watch wrestling, I think it's a joke, but those tag team wrestling matches you see, where someone gets tired, they go to the side of the ring and they tap their buddy's arm and they swap over. We've had these three groups of guys have a go. That didn't work, so we're tapping out, we're tag-teaming with these other guys here, and now we have the Herodians and the Pharisees who come to Jesus with a question which really is a trap. As an unlikely pairing, we've seen unlikely pairings of people trying to, to disrupt and to stop destroy at this point in time the ministry of Jesus. The Pharisees were religious leaders in Israel who were all about Israel being able to stand on their own two feet. The Herodians were people who supported Herod, who was Caesar, the the Roman Empire's rulers, 
designated ruler over Israel. They're not really the sorts of people that you want to see go hand in hand. But when we see they come to Jesus now, and the question of paying to Caesar taxes or not, we see a, an alignment of interests, so to speak. They don't see eye to eye on a whole heap of things. But at the moment, their interests are aligned. We don't see it, but I would assume there's been a fair bit of scheming to come up with this trap of a question. And before we see what it is, they try and disguise it with flattery. Now, when I was in school, we had a, a relief teacher, not one who's here today. There is one here today, not, not her. But we had a relief teacher when I was in school who we found out that she used to play cricket for the Australian women's cricket team. That's not the sort of thing you tell teenage boys who don't want to learn. We spent every time we had this teacher asking her how good she was. Where in the world did you travel to play cricket for Australia? Newcastle was one of the very exotic locations they went to. But she loved to talk about cricket. She loved to talk about herself playing cricket. And as teenage boys who didn't want to learn, we would just give her flattery to get her off what she was meant to be doing. It was a means of not doing the right thing. It was very silly of us. I should probably apologise if I ever see this teacher. But at the time, we knew that flattery would get us out of whatever work our regular teachers had, designed, had assigned for us. And the point is that, that flattery can disguise sinister reputa- uh, intentions. These guys, they come to Jesus. These are people who are upset with Jesus, mind you, which makes the words we're going to read dichotomous with their true intent, which reveals a flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true. And don't care about anyone's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I think when we know that these guys are there to destroy Jesus, these words that they speak are clearly given as a form of false flattery. It even begins with the first word, teacher. We can't separate this from Mark 11 verse 27 in this courtyard conversations that are taking place. Going back there... It's like these guys are coming to Jesus going, okay, we're sort of friends with the, the, Pharise- with the, 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 the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. We know that they've questioned your authority and tried to distance themselves from you maybe even just 10, 15 minutes ago. We know that they tried to do that. But here you have leaders in front of you, us Pharisees, us Herodians from very different factions who rarely see eye to eye and we are here to acknowledge that you are a teacher. And we're going to tell you that we respect you as a teacher because you don't care for the regard of men. You do what's right no matter what. They don't believe it. They don't believe it, but they are using flattery to disguise their true intent. We know you're true. It's a big thing to say. We know you're true. You don't care about people's opinions, not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. Jesus, we respect that you stick to your guns even when it might upset people, even those three groups of people you just had a discussion with.
And this is coming from people who, as we saw at the end of Mark 12, verse 12, refused to act against Jesus because they cared too much about people's opinion of them. They didn't care for Jesus. These guys who you would expect as leaders, particularly the Pharisees, as religious leaders of God's people Israel, you would expect them to have integrity. I say, you're not swayed by appearances while they are currently being swayed by appearances and currently trying to sway appearances in their favour by working the crowd. If these guys had genuinely believed what they were saying to Jesus, would have a very similar situation. But we have a facade of honesty, a facade of integrity, a facade of respect that comes across here. And the facade is there to disguise the malicious intent of coming to Jesus. They don't come to Jesus out of a desire to show respect to him. They come with the trap so that they can finally get Jesus arrested and removed, either arrested by the Herodians for saying something against Caesar or completely discredited in the temple where the God's people were to worship in front of the multitude gathered there. A flattery is there to provide some sort of false foundation for the trap. Is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not? And should we pay them or not? Now, the second question there seems a little bit weird. The answer to the first one should determine the answer to the second. But they're even trying to distinguish between the law and right and wrong here. There's a lot of lawyering going on in this situation. It reflects a duplicitous nature in their approach. The, the whole approach here is not genuine. It's, it's a facade. It's a, it's a trap for Jesus. And greed, as we saw last week with the other guys we spoke about, greed underscores the entire trap of what these guys are trying to do. Greed because Jesus currently has the affection and the ears of the multitude and they want the affection and the ears of the multitude of people who are right there listening to this happen. Whatever way Jesus answered this, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They might be thinking, it's a yes, no. We've got him. He's going to upset the Jews. He's going to upset Rome. This is the end of him. We have got him. Whatever answer Jesus gives here, they're thinking we have sorted the whole situation out. This is a trap that is presented in just a few short words there in Mark 12. We move into our second point and we see the answer. Now before we see Jesus' response, we give an insight as to how he perceived their question in verse 15. He knew their hypocrisy. He knew their hypocrisy. He saw them for what they were. He saw the question for what it was. But as we saw in the children's talk, seeing a trap and getting out of the trap are sometimes two very, very different things. And Jesus is being presented with, at the end of verse 14, what looks like an unanswerable question. So let's see how he does answer it. Why do you test me? So we see there, he calls out the hypocrisy of the people. 
of the Pharisees and the Herodians. He calls out their hypocrisy before the crowds. Not in as many words, but why do you test me? He's revealing that he knows that this is not a genuine question. Then he says, bring me a denarius that I might see it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him at the last words we read in verse 17. Jesus has somehow managed to escape this apparently foolproof trap that he was being presented with. When Jesus got hold of that denarius, he asked the crowds whose face was on it, and he clearly showed that any Roman coin belonged to Rome, it belonged to Caesar. There are practical lessons we draw from this for everyday life. If you're living in a country that has taxes, we should pay those taxes. Now, we could end the sermon there and that would be very dissatisfying, wouldn't it be? Jesus told us to pay taxes. What a wonderful lesson. But there is a lot more going on here than this. See, Jesus is drawing our attention to something more because he doesn't just talk about Caesar. He doesn't just talk about the Roman emperor. He brings God into his answer. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, where we read from verse 11 this morning, talks about this a little bit more. There, Peter has just spoken to believers about being born to, to a living hope. And he talks about believers being born to live as a holy people. And then he says that we are set apart for God. Yet we still live in submission to those who are in authority over us. Not obeying commands that contradict God's. We can never draw that from Scripture. We can never draw that from what 1 Peter says, from what Paul writes in Romans about this issue as well. We can never read that from what Christ says here either. Never obeying commands that contradict God's words. But living in obedience and submission, the words we read in 1 Peter, to the governments that God has allowed to have earthly authority. So that in doing this, we might glorify God, and even so that people who would want to oppose us and criticize us and to destroy us for loving God, that they too might glorify God in what Peter calls the day of visitation. So for us today, for us today, we have Laws trying to be passed at a federal level to suppress religious freedom. I should have been more aware of this. A few emails got sent to my spam folder apparently, but hearing that this morning and having seen it play out in the news recently, that's a, a scary thing. That's what our elected leaders are doing. But even if we didn't vote for the party who's in office, let your love of God and desire to glorify God be more evident than anything else. Jesus doesn't say this, but this is where he is drawing our hearts and minds to. And this is what scripture as a whole is drawing our hearts and minds to. 
the answer that Christ gives is one that the Pharisees couldn't complain about. Giving a denarius with Rome's inscription on it that's been made and minted in Rome for the purposes of the Roman Empire, there's no skin off the Pharisees' nose to see that go back to Caesar, really. If they want to keep it for themselves, then there's much bigger greed issues at play in their hearts. But this isn't really an answer that they could complain about from the Pharisees' perspective. Uh, interesting dynamic of the time as well as some people have said well maybe that means that the temple wouldn't get enough money but in the temple in the courtyard which they're currently standing in the Jews didn't ever pay their temple taxes with Roman coins they wouldn't pay temple taxes with an inscription and the image of someone setting themselves up as a false god what they would do was that they would use coins from Tyre and Sidon in the areas north of Israel which were blank coins with no inscription so in Jesus answer here he's not shortchanging the temple he is not preventing worship of God with this answer he is not making life more difficult for people there's no problem with this from a get out of the trap perspective Jesus has handled this incredibly well and from the Herodians point of view of course it should go back to Caesar it has his face and image on it Jesus has diffused the trap And we see in the next uh, few interactions through Mark 12 that there's more traps presented to Jesus. But this potential bomb in many, many ways has been diffused. Now I mentioned that Jesus' answer didn't just deal with Caesar, it brought God into view. That's a side of the response from Christ we haven't looked at yet. Render to God the things that belong to God. So for the rest of today, we're going to look in our third point at the things of God. What things belong to God? We had Psalm 24 as our call to worship this morning. The whole earth, the earth in its fullness and everything that dwells within it belongs to God. Psalm 50 verses 10 to 12 says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. And God says through the psalmist, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. What belongs to God? Everything belongs to God. But there is a specific application that Jesus is driving us towards. And it has to do with the image and the inscription that are placed upon that coin. In that, our mind should be going back to how God has designed us. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just as these Roman coins, the scenarios that Christ held up before the crown was crafted to display the image of Caesar, every single person has been finely and intricately designed and crafted to display the image of God. It is not just about giving taxes to Caesar, it's about giving back to God what belongs to God as well. And what belongs to God is our very selves. What we read in Psalm 24, what we read in Psalm 50, that alone would be enough to say, well, we belong to God. He's made us. We're in the world that he owns. We belong to him. But not only that, 
We are created in the image of God. You might be going, well, what about the inscription though? Maybe we can find a loophole there. We can't. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 says, They, people, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Even though we are affected by sin, even though we might present ourselves as being like chipped coins, we have the image and the inscription of God that shows that we belong to him just like the denarius that Christ held up belonged to Caesar's, to belong to Caesar rather. And it's not just one verse we can choose from Romans 2 and verse 15 there. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Every single person has this inscription on our hearts. Unlike a coin where that inscription is placed on an inanimate and an unthinking object. The law that is placed in our hearts is one that convicts us, even as we see in Romans 2.15, we try to suppress it. It shows itself in the conscience that we have been given. There is so much proof for what the Bible says about the law being placed on our hearts. Do we think it's coincidence that we look across so much of the world and we see so many of the same core values expressed in the law? Do we think that's coincidence? Or do we think maybe if God has placed his image and inscription on each one of us that that is going to be reflected there? What Jesus is saying to us here isn't just if you have a denarius and the Roman taxman comes knocking or in our case the Australian tax office comes knocking or they send emails these days just do your bit pay your taxes, that's all I care about. That is not what Jesus is saying here. That's part of what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus is building a case here in these few short words. He is building a mountain case here to prove to us that we owe our very lives to God. Everything we have belongs to God. Our ent- the entirety of our existence belongs to God. We owe it to him. We should be willing to give it to him. And as we've seen so many times, as we know Jesus within a week of going to the cross himself, we are not being asked to give to God any more than God gave of himself to us. We're being asked less. And we're being asked to give what God rightfully is owed. The answer that Jesus gives here is an answer that challenges our greed, just as it challenges the greed of his questioners. It's so easy to plan our lives based on our comfort. It's so easy to neglect God to let those opportunities to explain to people our hope 
is Christ alone. To have those opportunities just pass by because we don't want to make things awkward. It's better for us. It's better for our friendships. It's better for our comfort if we just say nothing at all and we give no glory back to God, let alone our lives to God. We're being called, just like the Pharisees and the Herodians, to challenge areas of greed in our lives. Is our greed at work to solidify our position and standing? Is our greed at work on display so we can chase promotions to get better paychecks? That might not be expressed as securing financial position by greed, but when we make about us, we show that we are greedy of our lives and not willing to give back to God what belongs to him. Greed often presents itself in a way that it doesn't consciously dominate areas of our lives, but it can still be very, very present. The question we need to ask is whether greed and a prideful desire to be in charge of our lives inhibit us giving to God what God deserves and what God is due? It's a big question. Have you given your life 100% to God? This is not a tax that's one given based on income levels. God owns us in our entirety. Are we trying to hold back or not? This is the challenge. We see enough through scripture to understand this challenge. Psalm 50, 10 to 12. Psalm 24, particularly those first two verses. Romans 2. 1 Peter 5, Mark 12, 13 to 17. Render to God the things that are God's. You are God's. Will you render yourself to him? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this deep challenge that Christ issues here. We thank you for the wisdom that he demonstrates to us in navigating tricky waters that would potentially sink us and quite likely would sink us if we were trying to navigate them ourselves. We thank you for his wisdom on display and we pray, Lord God, that we would truly examine our hearts to determine that we are ready to render to God the things that are God's, that we would give ourselves fully to you who has given everything for us, who gave your son for us more than we could ever pay ourselves. So we ask that you would Help us honestly answer this question and work on those areas, those chipped edges that need to be smoothed out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.